turn in our Bibles today to Isaiah in chapter 22. Isaiah 22. And keys, as we've been speaking uh, to the children, have been used by us for thousands of years. It is said by historians that Theodorus of Samos invented the key in the 6th century BC. Archaeologists have found keys in the ancient city of Nineveh. Such keys were made of wood. It was the Egyptians who developed the simple key into a more complex mechanism. And then the Romans who advanced the locking process to metal keys and locks. And key is a prominent aspect of this portrait of Jesus in chapter 22 and verse 22. This prophecy about Jesus comes in a section, as we've said, stretching from chapter 13 to 23, a section about God's judgment on the nations around Israel in the time of Isaiah. The chapters can be divided into two series of prophecies against five nations in each series. So chapters 13 to 20 include prophecies against the nations of Babylon, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, and Egypt, all nations around Israel. The second series in chapters 21 to 23 include prophecies against Babylon, Edom, Arabia, Jerusalem, as in chapter 22, and then Tyre in chapter 23. Now it's easy for young people to say or any of us to say there is nothing in these prophecies for me. They are Old Testament prophecies about nations that have ceased to exist. So let me help you and show you the relevance of these chapters for your lives today. And I briefly in our introduction here mention seven applications for our time and life that stand out in these chapters. And perhaps later on today, you could read through these chapters 13 to 23. The chapters show firstly the sovereignty of God over all the nations of the world. God was not just ruling over the life of the Old Testament church, but also over all the nations in Old Testament times. And what a message that is for us today. Russia with its brutality, Ukraine with its suffering, Sudan with its poverty, China with its vastness, North Korea with its unpredictability. All of this disruption in the nations can scare young people and any of us. But God is ruling over all the earth. Whatever their actions and whatever their religion. He alone determines their destiny, not them, not others. A second application of these chapters is that God sometimes judges in this life. These 11 chapters are judgments that will take place before the final judgment. Sometimes the humiliation of a nation or a person is a judgment by God on their life. An illness, an accident, a bankruptcy, a sacking can be a judgment by God in this present life. A third application is that some things just never change. What do we have in our time? We have nations 
attacking other nations. We have nations following false religions and denying the existence of God. That is exactly what we have in chapters 13 to 23. Babylon is given the lion's share of these chapters. It is dominant because it was the dominant nation in Isaiah's time. It attacked other nations. It followed its own set of gods, just as nations in World War I, World War II, and in our time are doing and continue to do. A fourth application is that these chapters are most useful in providing supporting proof for the Bible being the word of God. These chapters contain detailed prophecies made hundreds of years before the events took place. A good study Bible will help you to learn how these prophecies in 13 to 23 were fulfilled. Fulfilled prophecy, as we said last week, does not make the Bible the word of God, but it does show that it is the word of God. If you have doubts that the Bible is God's word, study these 11 chapters of prophecies made by Isaiah in 700 BC and see them being fulfilled in detailed manner hundreds of years after. A fifth application is that God judges those who are outside the covenant community. Any of you who have a problem with the question, what about those who have never heard the gospel? And it is one of the big questions about Christianity that we will consider. Need to read these 11 chapters. These chapters clearly teach that God judges people for their sins, not for their rejection of Jesus. As we read these chapters, there's an overriding sense that the God of judgment is absolutely just, right, holy, pure, fair. For not only are we confronted with the judgment that God will bring, we are told of the sins that have been committed by the nations. We are left with a sense of the absolute righteousness of God's judgment. A sixth application is that the church is not immune to the judgment of God. Jerusalem, incredibly, is included in these ten prophecies of judgment. And it's a solemn observation for our time. As we consider the moral drift in the Church of Scotland and in the Church of England. For example, last week, the Church of England proposed a praying for a blessing on gay marriages. These chapters, especially chapter 22, tell us that the writing is on the wall for our nation. The popular refrain of their time is the same as our time in verse 13 of chapter 22. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now I know over lunch today I'll be getting criticised for seven points about these chapters. But, but anyway, it's to encourage you to look at them and to see that they're really relevant. We're focusing on the seventh one. The seventh application of these chapters is that they contain a prophecy about the gospel and grace of God. 
This long section, 13 to 23, which perhaps you'll be able to read in the near future, contains a direct prophecy about Jesus. Chapter 22, as we've said, is a prophecy of judgment on Jerusalem. In the end section of the chapter, verse 15 to the end, there's a prophecy about a man called Eliakim, who would succeed a man called Shebna, who was the prime minister of his day. And what is said about Eliakim in verse 22, I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and shut and none shall open is claimed by Jesus in Revelation 3 verse 7 to be also referring to himself. The verse is also used by Jesus to refer to the authority that he gave to his apostles in Matthew 16, read by Sam at our prayer meeting this morning. So in our sermon that we're coming to now, we will try to ascertain the meaning of the phrase in verse 22, how they apply to Eliakim, the prime minister, in his time, but then also to Jesus, and then to the church in our time and in our lives. Central to the portrait of Jesus, then, is the element of a key. And we consider three aspects of this key. Firstly, the placing of the key in 22 and verse 22. I will place, I will place on his shoulder the key. The placing of the key. What is placed? A key. Archaeology paintings and films of ancient times, as we've been saying, help us understand what this key would have looked like. Not the type of key that we have in our pockets. The locks for city gates in ancient times were large. Consequently, keys were large, carried by two or three men. Such was their size and weight. The key is placed on his shoulder. The shoulder of Eliakim. This may be a literal reference to the ritual of installation. A large key placed on the shoulder of a future leader as a symbol of their office as we did with James Mackenzie this morning. In the UK we have the ritual of a sword being tapped on the shoulder of people who are knighted. Indicating the conveyance of office to the person. An office which includes a commitment to defend and promote the United Kingdom as symbolized by the sword being tapped on their shoulder. It's an office of honor and of duty. Or the reference to the the key on the shoulder could be to the common practice in the time of Isaiah of sewing into the cloth of a garment on the shoulder the badge of a key, as a boy scout or a girl guide might sew on a badge on their shoulder. Or it may be a reference to the practice of a small key being tied onto the shoulder as a symbol of power. E.J. Young suggests shoulder is mentioned and not hand because the ultimate authority And Judah belonged to the king and not to this Eliakim who was the prime minister. This person was the one appointed to manage 
all of the house or business of the king. In chapter 36, when Rabshakeh of Babylon comes to the walls of the city of Jerusalem with his army, it is the government officials that meet him. The group of officials is headed by this man, Eliakim. He was the prime minister of the king of Judah. He was, as the text says here, over the house of the king of Judah. The same position that Joseph occupied for Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Equivalent to the prime minister in the United Kingdom. But it's who places the key on the shoulder that's emphasized in the text. God says, I will place the key on his shoulder. This is an action that God is taking. This action of God is in response to the behavior of the former prime minister, Shebna. Shebna was leader of the house of the king of Judah. But he had wasted the opportunity by carving out, as the text says, a glorious tomb in the hillside outside Jerusalem for himself. Rather than working on his leadership of the people, he was seeking glory and honor for himself, utilizing the resources of the king to advance himself and his family. And God will not sit idly by and watch such a person behave in such a manner. God is going to deal with Shebna and does so here. He will remove him from office, as verse 17 says. The Lord will hurl you away violently. Verse 19, I will thrust you from your office. Shebna has misused his position of power and authority as prime minister. And now, God is replacing Shebna with Eliakim. Verse 21, I will call my servant Eliakim. And I will clothe him with your robe and will commit your authority to his hand. Verse 22. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Here is God intervening in the history of Judah. Removing one prime minister who's gone off the rails and replacing him with a new prime minister symbolized with placing the key on the shoulder. The Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, has indicated that she will retire imminently. And so her office will be given to another. The nation is voting this weekend. But behind this change of Prime Minister, just as in Judah, so in New Zealand, is the sovereign purpose of God. And one of the lessons which, which I find really challenging in, in this first point is this that God takes seriously our half hearted service to Him. Shebna did not give his all to God, he enjoyed the prestige of the office, but did not live up. To his calling. He got distracted from God's work by temporal things. He was more interested in his own tomb than in God's temple, in his own name, 
than in God's name. And God steps in and removes him from office. God replaced Saul with David. He replaced Judas with Matthias. He replaced Shebna with Eliakim. There's a real challenge to us all, to the elders and the deacons, and especially the minister in the office that we have. Are we living up to our calling? Are we giving 100% to our work? Or are we passengers enjoying the prestige of the office but distracted from it by building up our own empires, looking after and furthering our own interest? The placing of the key. Secondly, the possessors of the key. Eliakim. Jesus, the Christian church. Eliakim, first of all, he replaced Shebna. He's likened in our verses to a wooden or metal peg which was built into the walls of houses when houses were built. The purpose of such ledges or pegs was to hang lamps on them for light within the buildings. It was steady, firm, Reliable, a secure peg embossed into the wall. But Eliakim, appointed by God, will fail. He will be like a peg that shears off the wall. With constant use, a peg loosens over time and then falls out. And so, in verse 25, we read, The peg that was fastened, that is, Eliakim, appointed by God in a sure place, will give way. Jesus, then the possessor of the key, Revelation 3 verse 7, describes himself. The words of the Holy One, he says, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Eliakim in receiving this key for the house of David is therefore a type of, of Jesus, who has also received from God the key of the house of David. As Eliakim had authority over the household of the king, his lands, possessions, army, wealth, so Jesus is Lord over all God's house. He is steward of the world and everything in it, and of the church and all in it. Jesus asserts, all authority is given me in heaven, and in earth. God describes Eliakim in verse 20 as my servant. A phrase used of Jesus in the second part of Isaiah chapter 40 to 66. Eliakim is the possessor of the key in his time. But Jesus, the fulfiller of Eliakim, is the possessor of the key in our time. But thirdly, the church in Matthew 16, Jesus says to the apostles, I give to you the keys of the kingdom. That is, Jesus gives of his authority over all things to church leaders. And generally, we understand this of elders having the authority to receive, or on the rare occasion, to excommunicate 
church members. They have the keys to open or to shut the doors of the congregation. The possessors of the key. All focus this weekend is on Rishi Sunak, how he will deal with Nadim Zahawi, the Tory party chairman. The chairman has had to pay a penalty of 4.8 million for unpaid taxes. The Prime Minister has the authority to sack him. Labour, of course, is calling for this. But will our Prime Minister sack him? Let's be assured that Jesus does reign with authority and diligence over everything. He is far more efficient than the admirable Prime Minister Joseph or Eliakim or our Prime Minister. Not a sparrow falls on the ground without Jesus. The very hairs of your head are all numbered by Jesus. As a congregation, this point is reminding us that Jesus has given to the leaders of the church, the elders of the congregation, authority to manage the church on earth on his behalf. He has given to us the keys of the kingdom and it's our duty to care for the souls of members of the church. Some members might be irked by the minister calling round with them and inquiring why you haven't been at church recently. Or your elder texting you and asking you, are you all right because we haven't seen you recently? Or an elder having a word with you about your behavior. What right have they to ask me these questions, you might say, to keep a register of attendance or encourage me to come to the prayer meeting? Is that not a bit OTT, you might claim? But that is our duty. We've been given the keys of the kingdom by Jesus. The authority, the responsibility, the duty to care for his people in his absence. And we seek to do it with humility, with love, with faithfulness. But to those of you who are not yet members, young people not yet members in this congregation, I want this point to be an attractive point to you. To become a member means putting yourself under the care and authority of church elders. Men who will care for you, who will pray for you, who will look out for you, who will encourage you who will help you in every way that they can to live the Christian life to the best that you can. And if you are serious about being a Christian, isn't this what you want? In any area of life, you will develop better and faster if you have a coach, Gakpo, who has just signed for Liverpool Football Club Beyond the coaches that he has in that club, he has hired his own personal coach to help him develop as a player. That's what the elders of this congregation are. They are personal coaches for your spiritual life. The placing of the key. The possessors of the key. And lastly, the power of the key. 
The key to your house gives us power over the house, freedom to roam within the house. It's the tool by which houses, windows, we were helped by Beth in there, many things are locked and opened. To possess the key means that we have access to something, control over it. If I give you the keys of my house today, you'll have access to my study, to my fridge, to my clothes, to my stash of tea cakes. The key opens doors, cupboards to grant access and shuts, locks doors to deny access. So the verse reads, he shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. The key symbolizes the authority to legislate, to make binding decisions in this case. It's a symbol of acting with power. This ruler will be powerful, the promises. His plans and decisions will be effective. He will open and none shall shut. It's a promise, Albert Barnes comments, of unlimited power. Not only will Eliakim have the support of the king of Judah, he will have the support of the king of heaven. Of David refers to the royal palace of David on Mount Zion. He will have access to the royal court. He will speak there. His voice will be listened to. He will be influential within that land. Jesus claims the same authority. He is the key. And he opens. And no one shuts. And he shuts. And no one opens. He rules in every life. And every nation. And no one can defeat his purpose. He is all authority. He opens doors of service. Opens up new ministries. He shuts doors of churches. And brings ministries to an end. George Whitfield was working in the pub that his mum owned. He'd given up his studies at school. One day a family friend came and announced to the Whitfield family that there was such a role as a servitor in Oxford University where poor people could go and serve the upper classes and the upper classes would pay their fees and keep. In that moment, the door of service was opened to George Whitfield. Young people, I encourage you to think of Jesus in this way. Prime Minister of the house of God, opening and shutting doors. Consider this in your careers. Maybe you have your heart set on a specific career, but do not get the grades or do not pass the interview. Perhaps that is Jesus shutting the door for you. He will open a different door for you. My niece was set on doing medicine. She loved her placement in the hospital, but though she had the grades, she was not accepted onto the course. She's studying another course now and really enjoying it. Maybe you really like someone, but she doesn't like you. There's no interest in you. Perhaps that's Jesus shutting one door. Trust him to open another door. One of the great things about this congregation is The older people, their wealth of wisdom and experience. 
It can be good to have people your own age in a church, but it's also good to have people a lot older than you. Befriend them and ask them about their life and God shutting doors for them and opening other doors. Some people here have changed their career path. Talk to them about that and how they saw Jesus in it. Some have lost loved ones. A door shut by Jesus in their lives. Talk to them about that. For the three men becoming elders, Gordon, James and Joel, Jesus has suddenly opened a door of service in your lives. We're delighted that all three of you are walking through that door. The one who's opened it will be with you. The concluding segment of this paragraph highlights two dangers. And both of those dangers face us as a congregation as we look forward to installing new elders. Nepotism in verse 24. They will hang on Eliakim. The family of Eliakim tried to use him to advance their own agendas. E.J. Young comments, by means of him, they will seek to raise themselves to honour. Now, no one has mentioned to me the danger of nepotism in Ard's session. In fact, people have frequently commented on how well the congregation has been served by the McEwen family. And I'm sure it will be the same with the McCavery family. All three men I have found in my discussions with them are independent thinkers. You don't have to fear that they are going to cow to an idea just because a member of their family has suggested it. It's an interesting detail for me that half of the twelve apostles were brothers. Jesus didn't fear nepotism in the apostolic band. He saw a strength in family connections. Let us, as a congregation, receive and support these three men whom you have chosen and pray for them. The real warning here is that the wider family members will not badger elders who are members of session to implement their ideas. They will hang on him, verse 24. The second danger is dependence on men. Verse 25. Eliakim's usefulness was finished. He falls from power. Albert Barnes thinks the reference is to Shebna, but it cannot be. The immediate context and use of the imagery of a peg indicates it's Eliakim. Eliakim, chosen by God, appointed by God, will be removed by God. Let not our trust be in man. I'm sure you've seen many cracks in me over this past year. The press is dominated with the failings of our leaders this weekend. Rishi Shunak videoing without a seatbelt on and official documents being found in the home of President Joe Biden. Let's pray for our leaders in London, in this congregation, and for the new elders. Let's thank God for providing them for us, but let our trust be in the one greater than Eliakim and all prime ministers and presidents, Jesus seated and reigning at the right hand of God who has said, I have the key of David. I open and no one will shut and shut and no one will open.
for all those of us who have failed as leaders in our home, in our church. Let us find cleansing in this moment in the blood of Jesus, the one who carries on his shoulder the key today, but who carried for us on his shoulder the cross.